Well, welcome to this uh, Bailey Gifford-sponsored session of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Ramona Koval from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and it's my very great pleasure today to be sharing the stage with playwright, novelist, um, writer of autobiography, and former practicing barrister, oh, John Mortimer, <laughs> who last... Oh, yes. Please. who last time I interviewed him here some years ago at 11am had arisen at 6am and had begun the day with champagne. That, that was some years ago, John, and um, you're still doing it by the look of well, it. Well, I, I still do it, and I, I appeared on a radio show uh, where, the, where the sort of person like you was, and I sat there, and then various people came in to talk, and a boy band came, and they'd just been congratulated on having... Um, you know, kicked their drug habit and be real, <laughs> and and so they looked at me and they said, "Have you got any addictions?" And I said, "Well, not really, but I do have a glass of champagne every morning at six o'clock." And the man looked at me, you know, in horror and said, "Are you getting counselling for that?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, no, I'm not actually." And uh, and then he said, "How long has it been going on?" And I said, "Well, ever since I could afford to have a glass of champagne." <laughs> Well, the title of the book you've just published, quite honestly, um, it's a catchphrase that occurs throughout the book, uh, spoken by many different characters in many different situations. And it's a strange phrase, isn't it? Because it in implies that there's a thing uh, like that's not quite honestly, or that in most social situations we're not being as honest as, as uh, we're about to be, and we have to flag it for the listeners. Yeah. Well, quite honestly, is a phrase which everybody uses when they're about to tell you a thumping lie. <laughs> and then they end up, I know what you mean, you know what I mean, which is quite obvious, really. <laughs> well, Lucy... So, so the thing about the book is that nobody is quite honest. N Lucy Purefoy uh, is one of the main characters in this, and she's a do-gooder. And it's this concept of uh, doing good that has taken your interest in this book. Isn't it a good thing to try and do good? Well, I don't know. It usually <laughs> usually leads to disasters, doesn't it? It's particularly in her case. I, there was a television program about these very nice British middle-class girls who adopted a criminal. I don't know whether you ever saw it. There was they were known as mentors, and they took charge of this criminal as they came out and tried to reform him. And this book is about this very nice girl who wants to do good in the world and takes charge of a little criminal with strange and extraordinary results, which I suppose we could tell them or not. Oh, I think we shouldn't really tell oh, them, because okay. that would spoil it. Yeah. But well, su very surprising results, let's say. But do-gooders, uh, they really want to, thanked for doing, be, they want to be thanked for doing good, don't they? They don't want to just do good uh, willy-nilly. No, I think no. I think they want to advertise the fact, don't they? Ooh. We'll just get someone to turn off their phone, and everybody else should turn off their phone right now because they'll be held to pay if we hear another one <laughs> like that. But I was just saying, yeah, do, they they want to be thanked for doing good. They they're sort of conscious of their goodness, aren't they? I suppose they are. Yes. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing to want to do good. I don't think she's rather sweet, Lucy, but it just leads her into a very strange situation. Well, in your book, there are criminologists who don't understand the causes of crime and bishops who don't trust in prayer and people who seem trusted members of society that commit crimes. Are you suggesting that it's, a, it's wrong to take people on face value? Yes, probably is. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. The bishop, I mean, she's got a really trendy bishop, her father. You know, he's... Uh, he he's, he has a, actually has quite a good speech for being being um, you know tolerant of homosexual marriages. This bishop and I actually when I, d I tried to I did have to defend some homosexual magazine called Gay News, and I found it in the Bible, and it's in the book of Leviticus, and the beginning of the book of Leviticus is all about how you mustn't eat shellfish. There's sort of paragraph after paragraph of how awful it would be if you ate shellfish. And then way down at paragraph 30, it says men shouldn't sleep with men. 
And I thought, and I said in my speech to the jury, and the vicar says, well, we've got as far as prawn cocktail nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't we do the rest of it? <laughs> well, Terry, Terry is the criminal in your book, and, and, uh, and he says, at least we learnt the difference between right and wrong in the youth offenders wing. Um, you make a, a point about the different modes of uh, different modes of moral views, the criminal's code of conduct, and their expectations about lagging, and the behaviour of women. Interestingly enough, um, are you suggesting that moral values are relative? I think so, because the criminal. I mean, he, he expands the criminal moral values is that you shouldn't 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 steal. You, you shouldn't do anything bad to children. Otherwise, you get red-hot cocoa poured on your head in your entire prison sentence. And you shouldn't steal from poor people. You should steal from banks and building societies and so on, which I think is you know, rather reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and we had someone in the prison, you know, who pinched the lunch of, a, of a, some tramp on par the park bench and five pounds. They treated him terribly. If you just rob a bank, you're rather respectable. Well, that's sort of the same the world over, isn't it, really? You don't have to be a criminal to know that. Why has he got such strict views about women and what they ought to be doing and, and their role in life? I don't know that I have, have I? No, he has, Mr. Terry. Oh, he has women. Oh, yes. Well, the, yes, because criminals are very old-fashioned and conservative people on the whole. You know, they're, they're not very keen. They don't, they don't think that women should do crimes. They certainly don't think that women should swear, which he doesn't like. But they don't think they, they don't think women should do crimes. They think the woman's place is in the home, you know, cooking the lunch and looking after the children. And so they don't like women on juries. Um, they don't really like women barristers all that much. But uh, you know, I, I, I like women on juries very much, and I was I found myself very very much, uh, you know, able to talk to them. And I, and I always think women are much more sensible than men. I mean, men live in a world of fantasy and make-believe, and women are rather realistic. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, you know, you have the jury with women on it. They're quite down to earth. You have a judge who's living in a total fantasy, <laughs> probably wearing women's underclothes. And <laughs> but why don't criminals like women on juries? Aren't women... Are they more soft-hearted towards the criminal, more understanding? No, no, they're not. But they're more... They, they usually, you know, come to the truth. But, uh, yes, I, I, but criminals, <coughs> really, they're ultra-conservative. They, like, they, <laughs> they don't like women in the doing robbing banks. And very few women do rob banks, in fact. Because <laughs> they're so sensible. Yeah, exactly. In fact, they don't commit very many crimes, women. So they shouldn't ever be sent to prison, really. They don't do anything really wicked, do they? Oh, I think they do. <laughs> but it's a secret from men. <laughs> now, Terry explains, Terry's the criminal, he explains to Lucy, our do-gooder, that excitement is often the real reason for criminals to do daring things, um, contrasting this with the boredom of everyday life and, and the dreariness of being good all the time. And I, I think at one point it suggested that good people are even boring to God. Oh, what? <laughs> boring to God? Yeah, well, that's, that's what the bishop says. I mean, the, the bishop has this quotation from the Bible saying, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth than eleven just men. And the bishop says, you know, it's very hard on these poor 11 just men. God's totally uninterested in them. He doesn't care whether they live or die. It's just these sinners God's so fond of. And uh, which, in a way, novelists are too fond of sinners. But what, I mean, having spent quite a lot of time <coughs> doing criminal cases, I tried to find out what the, what the main reason for crime is. And is it money? No, because some of them are quite rich. Is it? What is it? And it, it turned out to be excitement, really. And uh, so one of them said to me, it's the most exciting thing in the world. And he reformed and, uh, you know, became straight. And he went to the bank. And he, he sat in the banker's office and 
he was given a lot of money to do something, pay off his mortgage or something, and the bank manager was counting out these notes. And my friend, the ex-criminal, looked at him and he said, uh, you know, in the good old days, I'd have jumped over the table, hit him on the head, and taken the money. But now I just sit here, you know, obediently signing a thing. Life has become so dull. <laughs> and I think that that's what, that's what Terry says. It's the excitement. And that, just to give you a hint, is what Lucy finds out too. So um, where, where does the excitement lie? Is it the threat of being caught? Yeah, no. The, the <coughs> they said that to be in someone's house at night, wondering whether they're going to wake up while you steal the silver, is the you know, Compared with mountaineering, skiing, scuba diving, absolutely the best thrill in the world. I haven't tried it <laughs> yet. Yet. <laughs> so what's the answer then um, to fighting crime? Is it making the rest of life more exciting? Yes, I think so. <laughs> yes, definitely. They come to the Edinburgh Festival. <laughs> <laughs> so how... how Besides coming to the Edinburgh Festival, how, how do you think we can make life more exciting? I don't know. Change the government. <laughs> For a start. Um, get a few... De few de I don't know what to do, but... <coughs> trouble with being a writer is your life is exciting anyway, so you can't... You don't know what else to, how else to give it to people. Do you? And, and how... You, you, did you say your life is exciting? Yes, very. Why? Well, because I come to think, have talked these beautiful occasions like this. I, I'm forever. Um, it's like, uh, you know, if you're a barrister, you're uh, you're always waiting for a verdict. I'm always waiting for a verdict. That's exciting. You know, you're always waiting to see whether the jury comes in and says guilty or not guilty. And I'm always waiting for the critics to come in and say guilty or not guilty. So it's a ten perpetual tension. Was was crime exciting for for you as a barrister? Well, it, it, doing criminal cases is much more interesting than anything else. I mean, you know, barristers who, who do important cases, Shell versus you know Universal, Laundries Limited and they make an awful lot of money and they do it in total boredom and silence. <laughs> but you go down to the old bed and everybody's laughing, particularly people at the dock, you know. It's, 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 it's an incessant comedy, it's really funny. And most terrible things we're talking about, but it's, it's, it's funny and it is, yes, exciting. Is it hysteria or is it genuine amusement? No, it's like... Uh, I'm sure dot brain surgeons make jokes, don't they, when they're taking out brains. And if you're doing a murder, you know, you, you do make jokes, because it's all so horrible. When they're taking out brains, those surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me not to book in for that one. Do you ever admire a particularly daring criminal um, as a barrister? No, I didn't really admire criminals. Um, there are a lot of lawyers who who fall in love with criminals and make criminals stars. Just to say, a lot lot of prison warders. I mean, if you if you've done ten murders, and you've got yourself in the Guinness Book of Records, you go to prison, you're treated like a king. You know, but if you've just just done one little murder, you just have the cocoa poured on your head. <laughs> so there's, there's a, a real great, there is a snobbery. Yeah. There is a, de a, de a definite snobbery about criminals. They have a sort of a glamour, which I don't really share. Well, Freud and God and transference of guilt gets a serve in this book. And I, and I wondered what your views were about the criminal mind and the possibility of psychiatric interventions. I think it's probably too late for psychiatric intervention. Um, I, don't know, I don't know how you reform criminals. Um, I don't. I shouldn't think the psychiatrists very helpful, really. That, but that's the bishop again. You see, he's got these dotty ideas, and so the way he he just thinks that uh, Terry is is transferring guilt. That that bishop doesn't. He doesn't have much, you know, going for him, does he? No, not the poor bishop. No. 
Girls who fall in love. He was quite good at sex when he was a vicar, but when they appointed him to a bishop, <laughs> according to his wife, it was, the sex life died. <laughs> He's got too near to God to bother. Well, talking about sex, girls who fall in love with criminals, um, you know, feature in this book, or a girl, and end up in love with crime in a sense. It's yeah. not uncommon, is it, for women to to fall in love with men in prison. What's that about? Well, well that's because they're very... They, I know it isn't at all uncommon. And, and I mean, that, and, and I think that's very good. I mean, there are a great number of girls who adopt people on death row, don't they, and go to America, and look, which it, to me is to be totally admirable. But there is a sort of glamour, isn't there, about criminals, a big criminal. But it's sort of odd having your boyfriend all locked up all the time. Well, it might be a good <laughs> if I solve a lot of problems. You don't think there's anything odd about those kinds of relationships? Yeah. No, I, I can understand. I, I do think there is a sort of glamour attached to it. Now, Terry picks up a book, Paradise Lost, and, uh, and other books, and he, he kind of moves away from crime. Do you think there's a redemptive power in literature? In, in Paradise Lost. Well, for example. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, what I wanted to do about Terry was not to have him as a dim-witted criminal. I mean, he, does, he reads lots of books in prison, and he's read Crime and Punishment, and to everyone's surprise. Uh, I don't know what the redemptive power of I think you could be, read, have read an awful lot of books and still be quite wicked, can't you? Mm. I think. I think so too. Now, but you know, everything that the middle class people in this book try and do, um, you know, they try and go on the BBC on thought for a day. Um, they, you know, they, they, they try and you know, reform criminals or be nice to them or teach them how to, you know, move and shop into into society. But of course. Crime as a way of life is a much more reasonable income to have than yes, than exactly compared to the uncertainties of life in the low wage job market. Yeah, is there anything the middle class can do about helping people who are criminals at all? Well, I think that I think that the whole prison system is crazy. I mean, there's a very good, uh, excellent inspector of prisons. The last, not the last one. Named, who said that prison was a very expensive way of making bad people worse. And the fact that we lock up more people than, you know, than any other country in Europe now are way ahead of anyone, and we've got more a huge lot of crime. I mean, I, I don't think anyone has really found a way of, of, of curing criminals, but it, it certainly isn't in prison, I don't think. I mean, I think that, <coughs> you know, they send young people to prison and then they learn to be worse and more, more effective criminals than they were before. So there's a sort of hopelessness about prison and a hopelessness about people who can't think of anything, anything better to do. So when you write books like this, is it really because you want to change the prison system, for example, in this, in this book? No, I wrote that book because I thought it was an entertaining story and, and, and people would enjoy it. Well, it I, is that. Yes, I hope. Um, but, um, no, I mean, I was, I was chairman of the Howard League and I did, uh, did you know, I did a lot about um, trying to find out different, you know, I think that <coughs> there is a, a great point about trying to cre treat them in society can go wrong, but um, certainly prison doesn't really answer any questions. Well, ever up to date, you've got a, a new Rumpole coming out later, later in the year, I think it is? In October, yes. Called Rumpole and the Reign of Terror. It is. It's about terrorists. I thought so. From the But time. it's not really about terrorists, it's about this wonderful government who has given away all our civil liberties, cancelled Magna Carta, forgotten the Petition of Rights, stop trial by juries, 
remove the presumption of innocence just because the terrorists are around, which uh, you know is a certain way of uh, changing our way of life, which is what the terrorists want to do. Basically, that's what Rumpo is saying. And he is defending someone who either is or isn't a terrorist. Little Pakistani doctor. And, but, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that Rumpo inveighs against is, for instance, the, the method of trial if you wanted to get out of Belmarsh, which where you're put in without any charge. You have a court proceeding in which the, the accused person isn't allowed, isn't allowed to know what they're charged with, and if uh, neither his other his lawyers, and if if that is ever mentioned in court, the accused just has to remove move himself from court in case he should find out what he's meant to have done, <laughs> which is a wonderful you know it's, it's put us back it's way before twelve fifteen. Magna, <laughs> Mr. Blair has removed us back to the dark ages. And that's what Rumpole is going on about. So who advises your Prime Minister Good on knows. legal matters? God knows. I think this... <laughs> he's very near to God, isn't he? And God's got... <laughs> God has absolutely no experience of the criminal law. He's a bit of a smiter, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. So, um, there are lots of things about modern life that um, you've written about... Um, in, in a, a previous book, um, you know, when you're summing up your wisdom, um, oh. you know, the, the, the book that you, you wrote to really tell your grandchildren, I suppose, some of the wise things that you'd learnt during your life. Where there's a will, it was That's called. the one. Um, and, and I'm just wondering if you could sort of um, expand on some of these things. Um, you, you don't like air travel, for example. No, and I was relieved today that the whole Air Force air, air system was broken up and I came on the train, which is a delightful experience. <laughs> so there's one good thing about terrorist threats. Then. Yes. And um, multi-channel television. Don't I like that? No, apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you like it now. <laughs> now you've gotten used to it. <laughs> No, I, I don't mind that. I'm not. I'm not very keen on uh, what is it called? Yeah. You know, all those computers. Computers, things. yes, yeah. yes. You're not keen on them. No, because I think pe I think the method of communication has become more important than what you communicate. You know, there's so many wonderful ways of saying saying something, but you could do it all on a postcard, and it might be much more interesting, really. It's what you what you have to say, which is interesting, not how you're how you're you know communicating. I think. So, do you write letters? I do write letters, but I write with you know, in a pen on a piece of paper, and someone has to try and read it because I can't read. What <laughs> I, I, I can't. I've given up trying to read my handwriting years ago. <laughs> well, I think that we should invite this fantastic audience to uh, <laughs> to take part in our conversation. So, I think we'll put the lights up. And there's some people around with microphones. And um, if you just put your hand up and wait for the microphone, then um, we'll love to hear what you've got to say. Yes, the lady in the white at the front seat, just here. You talked about literature and the redemptive force of literature. But one of the problems of prison, surely, is that many of the prisoners are dyslexic. Shouldn't um, the authorities be trying to rectify that as something that would do well in the prison system, certainly, certainly that it should be rectified, and, and it is quite terrifying because we have, um, when we live in the country, we got hold of the school building, and we have uh, children from sort of the, the bad side of Oxford come for summer holidays, you know, near our house, and we, they sleep in this school and go around and come to barbecues and all that sort of thing. And these children from, I mean, you think of Oxford as a wonderful civilised place full of great colleges and great learning. The whole east end of Oxford consists of schools where they're not taught to read. They emerge from school without being able to read. And they, uh, you know, what hope have they got? And they're in foster care, which changes all the time. So 
I mean, the, the, the illiteracy is, is, is quite extraordinary. If you're dyslexic, of course, that, that's different, but that's, I suppose, slightly rare. But uh, I think a lot of criminals come from a big illiterate and undertaught and, and, you know, moved about from home to home. I don't know what future they've got. Yes, well, um, where's the mic? Um, there's a, a man just in the middle there and there's one there, or whichever order that you like. You say that uh, you're not keen on prisons. What do you think should happen to people who are found guilty? I know. What, 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 what do you think? <laughs> That's the great question, isn't it? I think that probably by then it's too late and that it's a, an indication of a failure in society. But I don't know what you do with them when you get to that stage. Well, I think you, I think you try and avoid sending them to prison for as long as possible. I mean, the idea, you know, what about, what about an ASBO? I mean, the book, new book I'm writing is about ASBOs. And you can be sent to prison if you're a little boy that kicks a football around uh, without any trial, without any sort of presumption of innocence and sent to a prison where you'll learn to do you know, really serious crime. Because the prisons are uni schools and, and universities of crime. So that people should be kept out of prison for as long as possible. And there should be as much, as much possible treatment of them in the community, as much as possible. But I don't think anybody's found a perfect answer to it. Except we do know that prison isn't the perfect answer to it. Yes, gentleman just with his hand up here. I was just wondering if Tony Blair was put on trial as a war criminal, would Rumpel be prepared to defend him? <laughs> well, he would find it hard, but I think, I think that Rumpel knows that, you know, the, the great law of being a, 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 a defender is that you're like an old taxi plying for hire, and anybody who waves you down, even the most miserable and abject of citizens. So he probably would depend Tony Blair. Right, what about this side? Come on, you're not all shy. <laughs> yes, lady in the front row. I know that in the prisons there's a lot of work done with writers' groups and poetry and that. Do you think that helps and do you see a rival in the bestseller list other than Mr. Ar Lord Archer, <laughs> of course? Yeah. No, I think I think it does help. I'm sure it does. And you know, anything and drama helps a lot. Plays in prisons because then you can get out of yourself and be someone else for a little while. I think that's a great thing. And, and everybody is trying, but it's 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 uphill work. There was another. Yes, right at the back. I recently sent a parcel of books to the son of a friend of mine who's in prison awaiting trial at the moment, and all the hardback books were returned because they weren't allowed. And I just wonder whether this actually restricts criminals to, or potential criminals, to reading things like Lord Archer if they can't get hold of more serious books. Well, they should read anything, shouldn't they? And that's terrible that the hardback books aren't allowed. I mean, I know. Uh, someone, you know, a, bo a boy who killed someone in a, in a road accident, he was in prison and they took away all his books that he was trying to study with. I mean, I think, you know, books, plays, anything like that, I think can help people to get ideas above, above crime. Why would you ban hardbacks? I don't know, that maybe they're an offensive weapon. I mean, lots of books I can think of are offensive weapons. <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, I, we, no, we leave poor old Lord Archer alone. He's now, so I, someone had their hand up. Oh, yes, yes, in the front here. I'm interested in the fact that you've got a book out now. You've got Rumpole coming out in October. You're writing a book about Asbos. And the, the thought that comes to mind is one that was posed famously in an essay by George Orwell, Why I Write. And why, let me be quite frank, why at your age 
are you still writing so prolifically? Why do you do it? Because at my age, I'm, I, I've never played golf. I'm too old for love affairs. <laughs> what else am I to do with my time? <laughs> also, I need to have something decent to read. No, I mean, it's a habit. I, I couldn't not write every day. Um, I should feel it, you know, play there. But anyway, if I didn't write, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have had a glass of champagne I haven't paid for. <laughs> I, I wouldn't meet all these you know, very, very nice people. I, I should be sitting at home miserable. Oh, hand up there, yes. Thank you, sir. Mr. Mortimer, I'm an American barrister who has practiced, uh, you might call it criminal law, but I call it civil law, planning, zoning, and development. Uh, it has its criminal uh, tinges as well. And I have admired Mr. Rumpole immensely. Uh, he's been the light of my life, reading and rereading and almost memorizing the work that you have written. Um, as to the gentleman's question, why are you still writing? My question, my answer to that is, more power to you. Keep it up forever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I tell you what, why Rumpel, can, I can't keep Rumpel up. And that's because <clears throat> every Rumpel story is a comment on something that's been going on in the world. I mean, in the olden days, there was a, a great scare with social workers removing children from their from their families because they thought they were worshipping the devil or something. So I wrote Rumpel and the Children of Dev the Devil. When they come to try and uh, remove the right to silence, I wrote a Rumpel story saying, you may have many other reasons for not wanting to say where you were last night other than the fact that you're guilty of a crime. And now, with the government, you know, throwing away all our civil liberties, he's got more, more than ever... Uh, duties to do. So there he is to comment on the on the passing scene, really, which I think keeps him alive, keeps him going. Also, he's you know he's a nice old codger, really. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Can you? Oh, okay. Which ones? Yeah, yeah. this one's a bit closer. But then I'll, I'll come to you. Uh, you were talking about do-gooders earlier. I was just wondering how you would characterise Mr. Blair's motivation in doing what he's doing. Is he, is he, does he think he's doing good with disastrous results? Is he wicked? Is he stupid? Or, or is he some combination of those things? Gee, that's a I think, I think that his, his fatal weakness is that he's absolutely besotted with power, being Prime Minister, isn't he? So power, I think, I think power is his main objective. And I and I think he I think he probably thinks he's right. I don't know how he manages to do that. Uh, I, I think he I think he just really thinks I'm right. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, anyway, he's all alone on a beach <laughs> somewhere, isn't he now? At the back row. It's, it's really a terrible situation. I mean. For, for us who have voted Labour all our lives with, you know, devotion, I think it's a, it's a really sad outlook. Just speaking to I'm not quite sure how to operate this. That's you're, it, you're doing it fine. Back to crime and punishment. There was a, a very recent proposal by um, one of the chief constables to the association of chief constables that they should replace the mythical clip in the ear that the old Bobby used to give with summary punishment. So, catch the boy racers and crush their cars. Crush their cars. Etc. How do you feel about that as a proposal? I think it's absolutely outrageous. But I think Tony Blair, sort of thing that Tony Blair likes. I mean, I think Tony Blair like all trials to take place you know, in front of Inspector Knacker in the friendly neighbourhood Nick. 
And the idea that you bring in things like the presumption of innocence and a legal process are absolutely anathema. I think it's a horrific idea. If, you've got the, if you get the police from being judges and juries, you've you really sold out to fascism, really, haven't you? No, absolutely not. Under no circumstances. So, so your relationship with the police isn't very good, by the sound of it. What? Your relationship with the police over those years, being a barrister, wasn't very good? Well, I didn't have, you don't have much really relationship with the police when you're a barrister, except you cross-examine them. And um, they're usually terrible witnesses. Why? Why? Well, because they've got it all written down in their notebook, and that's it, you know, and they can't really remember anything else. The great thing is to ask them all sorts of other questions, like, was it raining? <laughs> and they say, oh, I can't remember. So, you know, you, know, you seem to remember every other detail. You well, can't you remember whether it was raining or not, because they haven't put that down in their notebook. <laughs> then they look silly. <laughs> now, so, my relationship with the police was never marvellous. <laughs> but what about I got robbed. And, uh, and, oh. and, and the police came in and they said, oh, I expect you'll enjoy defending the chaps what robbed you, won't you, sir? That's <laughs> <laughs> probably true. <laughs> so you, you used to make the jury laugh too. That was another technique. Yes. You, as soon as you can get the jury to laugh, you can, uh, you can you'll probably home. get off, yes. And the judge is doing everything he can to stop the jury laughing. Probably without success. So they didn't like it when, the judges didn't like it when you, you turned the, the jury room into a, a sort of theatre? No. No, they didn't. But the, they, could, they did it themselves, you know. I mean, we, I did a trial called the Oz trial, which we know about because you're Australian. And uh, <coughs> it was a, a, the school children's Oz, which was meant to be a very obscene book. And the judge was so ridiculous. At one point he said, um, I've forgotten what he said. <laughs> oh, yes. He said, for those of us without a classical education, what is this cunilinctus? <laughs> so it was a sort of cough medicine. <laughs> and, and at that point, I remember George Melly, who was in the witness box, turned to the judge and said, my lord, in our days in the Navy, we called it yodeling in the canyon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all a rich comedy, really. But I also the same judge, I, I called the printer, and I said, do you carry on business at number 10 Buckingham Palace Road? And the judge woke up and said, for God's sake, keep the royal family out of... <laughs> Yeah. And then we called Monty. Do you remember Monty? Well, the one with rolling eyes. Comedian with rolling eyes. What was he called? Marty Feldman. For some reason, I called him as a witness. I can't, must have been mad. <laughs> because he called the judge a boring old part. <laughs> which, you know, was literally true. But you're not meant to say that. And then he came out of the witness box and he put his hand on my arm. He said, great to be working with you at last. <laughs> And I must tell you the final story about the Oz trial. <coughs> I have notebooks, W.H. Smith notebooks, with circles printed on them. And the prosecutor, who was rather a jolly chap, used to come in. I used to be in court about 8 o'clock working. He used to come push his way past my knees and say, give us a kiss, darling. I'd say, shut up, get on, you know, prosecute this case. And he was making his final speech, and he said, members of the jury, if this terrible magazine is allowed, Western civilization will fail. There'll be drug taking and sex in the streets. The traffic wardens will be tied to the traffic warden posts and raped. Everything will collapse, members of the jury. And then he looked down at my notebook, and he said, assholes all over your notebook, darling. And he went, members of the jury. This That's the sort of thing where... Went on in court. But I miss it all, really. 
But I read in The Independent that you said barristers have an advantage over playwrights because they have the weapon of boredom, too. It's not just all hijinks and fun in the court. No. You can be very boring. <coughs> you can bore judges absolutely to hysteria. <laughs> and, and if you really want, you know, you can go on talking to them until they, you know, it's five past two, four, and they've missed their last train to Godalming. <laughs> so they could do anything you want. <laughs> So that is a technique, yes. <laughs> I actually, I did that uh, at the end. I did make. I made a speech at the end of one criminal trial at the Old Bailey. And I said, "Members of the jury, you ought to be congratulated on listening to what was clearly the most boring case ever to be heard in this court." And the judge began his summing up, and he said, "Members of the jury, it may surprise you to know that the criminal law of England is not there entirely for the amusement of Mr. Mortimer." <laughs> quite clever of him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're, I mean, you get surprised in life, don't you? Even, even recently you got a big surprise, didn't you, about a new member of your family that arrived? Yes, I got a new son. Yes. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, it happened in the course of nature long, <laughs> long, long ago, but... Um, I didn't know because the, my relationship with his mother was broken off at a long point ago. And, um, and now, thank God, someone writing a rather nasty book about me uh, <coughs> interviewed his mother and uh, found out, and now I've met him. And he's the most wonderful addition to my family. And How old is he now? He is 42, and he's lovely, very, very nice. And did he know about you? He did, because his godmother told him, but his mother wasn't allowed to mention it. And all of that. So, it's, so that's, you know, something nice happened. Very nice. So you um, see him often now, or very get often. to know him? Oh, very often, yes, absolutely. And is he a chip off the old block? Well, it's extraordinary uh, that, uh, you know, if you're thinking about nature, not nurture, because he came into my room you don't know what to say to your 42-year-old son you haven't seen before. No, no, no problem. And I have a, a signed photograph of Fred Astaire. And he said, do you like Fred Astaire? And I said, I adore Fred Astaire. And I think you should write in the way that Fred Astaire dances, which is to do something very hard and make it look very easy. And he said, yes, I love Fred Astaire. And I spend my time listening to Stacey Kent, who sings Fred Astaire numbers. And I went to my hi-fi machine and I pressed the button and on the turntable was Stacey Kent singing Fred Astaire. And for instance, we're, ab we're both absolutely petrified of lifts. And I mean, if I, I get in a lift, I scream until it, I get down to the bottom and it opens and I let out. And we both got into a lift at a restaurant by the BBC, which is very high, and we both screamed <laughs> together in this lift. So everything... I mean, the, the only interesting thing about that is none of that is what his upbringing is. It's all entirely, you know. It's hard to know how, how screaming in lifts is sort of an evolutionarily advantage, <laughs> advantageous, isn't it? Well, screaming in lifts, yes, is quite a private thing. I mean, <laughs> God, I had two lifts at the station, to the railway station. Well, lucky you've been drinking since 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> what about some more questions from the audience? Yes, sir. It seemed to me that the judge who said that the criminal law was not made for your amusement may have been very perceptive. I think he did. He was, yeah. <laughs> because, um, you know, you've treated the subject from your experience with a great deal of levity. And your criticism of the authorities and what they're doing to try and protect us has not been accompanied by any alternatives on offer. Yeah, I know, dreadful. No, we are really <laughs> very concerned. Yeah. And there are plenty of examples of you know, very serious threats. Now, unless you can come up with something better than what's being done, then I think you should be more patient. More patient? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I don't agree with the judge. I think the purpose of the criminal law is to entertain me. And entertain you too, you know. Um, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to your question. 
But I, it is not being, all I know is it's not being answered at the moment. And, uh, you know, there are many, many theories and there are many people much more, uh, you know, scholarly than me about criminology trying very, very hard to find an answer. But I don't think we should be content with what we've got. That's all. Now, just if you just keep your hand up a little bit, so this... Talking of entertainment, is there anyone else you can ever imagine taking on the role of Rumpole, apart from Leo McCown? Well, no, that, that's, of course, he was the perfect Rumpole. So it's very extraordinary. I mean, I wrote the first Rumpole not knowing who was going to be Rumpole. And um, I, thought, I thought of an actor, and I can't remember his name, but he was Scotch. Do you know of a Scotch actor? <laughs> Sean Connery. No, long ago. Alistair Sim. And I thought he would be the perfect rumper, but he turned out to be dead. <laughs> so he wasn't able to take it on. And um, so somebody suggested Rump Leo, and he came, and he, I mean, he never went to a law court, he'd never been to a law court ever, but he just happened to be the perfect rumper. And it is very difficult. I mean, I. We do Rumpole on the radio with Timothy West and Prunella Scales, and that's quite good. That's quite good on the radio. But I think it'd be very difficult to find the right person to, to do it on television. But there are people. I mean, Richard Griffiths is possible. He's very alive. Now, we've got uh, on the side here. Have we only got one? Oh, you've got it. Oh, Sorted. Uh, could you be so kind as to tell us about another of your memorable law cases, the ones when you were actually practising as a barrister, as it's very entertaining to listen to you talk about them? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did I do, apart from the Austra? Um You'll have to give me a minute to think about that. Uh, I can't help you with this one. I uh, know you can't. No, I can't. You can't. Um, <laughs> Well, I, yes, I did. Uh, yes, I did a case called Inside Linda Lovelace. <laughs> Do they have names? Yeah. Cases? Oh. And that, and that, but I had a very fine moment in that case because um, there was a description in this, this Linda Lovelace book about a, a seatless chair that hung from an electric uh, elastic band from the ceiling. And she sat in it, and you twiddled like you started model aeroplanes, you see. And she sat in this chair, seatless chair, twiddling round, uh, and arrived on the top of the gentleman who was lying on his back on the floor. <laughs> and um, on the floor. As, as we were discussing this, uh, uh, the psychiatrist, you know, for the prosecution, got <laughs> up and said, we have the most terrible results of a 14-year-old schoolgirl read this passage in, in the school playground. And I suddenly looked at the judge, and he was giggling so hard behind his little notebook that he couldn't, you know, resist himself. So I just said to the doctor, you know, would you mind telling the members of the jury whether it would have any different effect on a 14-year-old schoolgirl than that which it is now clearly having on a 70-year-old judge? <laughs> that, was, that was a great moment. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, yes, on the back. Is there another one up there? Um, quite honestly, I don't know if you've killed off your character, the politician, whose name, quite honestly, I've forgotten, but I wondered if he's still around, if you've thought at this time of reintroducing him in the novel. Now, who is the... Oh, you mean Titmus. Leslie Titmus, his name is, who was a, who was a um, sort of Thatcherite politician. Is that who you're thinking of? Yes, I think so. Yes. I know, yeah, I don't think he's dead. He, yeah, he became Lord Titmus. He's a sort of member of the House of Lords. And finally, rather a sort of sad figure. I, I don't think I've killed him. He, yeah, he could come back. Would you like him back? <laughs> but he was a, he was a sort of tip, absolute product of the Thatcher. 
Another question along the road there, I think. On a slightly more serious note, um, would you like to comment on the Kendall Smith case where following orders wasn't an acceptable reason for refusing to go back to Iraq and that was the defence that was denied in Nuremberg? I know. I don't think it was wrong, don't you? But I suppose if, you, if, you, if you'd have been acquitted, everybody would have walked out. I, I know. I would have decided that you could have a conscience, I think. There's another question behind you, I think. This might have to be the last question. Would you uh, like to recall your time as a witness at the Lady C uh, trial? I, didn't, I never was. <laughs> so that's very quickly answered. I never did that case. A friend of mine did it. Uh, well, Gerald Gardner did it. And, uh, but it was before I was... Uh, see, I started my career in the divorce. My father was a very well-known divorce barrister. So that in my childhood I was sort of raised, educated, fed, housed, entirely on the proceeds of adultery, really. <laughs> and uh, so I started by doing probate and divorce, which is what my father did. And I didn't get into crime until I became a QC. So that I didn't, I didn't get the, I didn't get the, um, I didn't get the Chatterley case. My first case was the last exit to Brooklyn book, which was about um, homosexual um, drug taking in New York. And I evolved a wonderful defense for it, which was that uh, if a description of sex in a book is so disgusting that it puts the British public off sex, at least until next Thursday, <laughs> it's of a highly moral and beneficent nature. <laughs> and the Court of Appeal thought that was wonderful. And they, <laughs> they acquitted the last exit to Brooklyn triumphantly. That was my start in dirty bookcases, I think. <laughs> well, talking of books, um, John Mortimer is going to kindly um, be in the next tent and is going to be very happy to sign his books for you. Um, so um, we're going to leave and then you're going to follow us and buy the books and, and have a chat with him as uh, he signs your books. But for the moment, please thank John Mortimer. Thank you very much.